In cost-plus contracts, exactly how much of a contractor's records can the government see, and who in particular can see them? Those questions are at the heart of a recent dispute among the Energy Department, HCM Corporation, and the Defense Contract Audit Agency. Haynes Boone Procurement Attorney Dan Ramish joins me to sort it out. Dan, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. And this HCM contract that it had with the Energy Department was a hybrid. Parts of it were fixed price and parts of it were cost plus. And so when DOE wanted to see their internal records, it sounds like the company was worried that they would see, that DOE would see their records concerned with the fixed price, which is none of the government's business. Is this what the crux of this is all about? That's right, Tom. HPM had a hybrid contract, and the government thought it was entitled to see both costs on the cost side of the house and on the fixed price side of the house. And the board didn't totally respect that line of separation, which they should have under the FAR clauses in question. There was a a specialty agency clause that could have been the basis for the holding, but the board went further and kind of muddied the water as to what records the government can get. The Defense Contract Audit Agency was the adjudicator here. Why was DCAA involved in a civilian contract? Or was it with one of the energy labs concerned with nuclear stuff? So sometimes uh, civilian agencies will bring in DCAA to serve as an auditor because of its expertise in that area, even though the contract is with civilian agencies. So in 2019, DOE did that with HBM. HBM here was a contractor providing occupational medical services at a Hanford site in Washington. Right. And there's a fourth agency that I didn't bring in, which is the one that decided this, the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals. DCAA and DOE were sort of in cahoots. HCM didn't like what they were doing between those two and took it to the uh, Civilian Board of Contract Appeals. That's right. So we actually talked about this over the summer, Tom. There was a question about non-monetary claims. So this is a non-monetary claim by the contractor. DOE was seeking cost records on the fixed price part of the hybrid contract. There were actually two different audits. One of them was performed by DCAA in 2019, and then the auditor Cone Resnick audited their 2020 contract records. And DOE's contracting officer said, hey, I want to see everything that you're providing to the auditors. Uh, And HPM said, no, these are proprietary company records. The records that relate to the fixed price part of the contract you don't have any business seeing, just as you say. There isn't a right under the contract clauses. And so this resulted in a non-monetary claim submitted to the DOE contracting officer. The contracting officer denied the claim and said that DOE was entitled to the records on the fixed price side as well. And that point, the contractor appealed to the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals. And the records were to be supplied to DOE by the Defense Contract Audit Agency. Well, this was another kind of line of argument here. DOE said that the contractor had to directly provide the records to the agency contracting officer, and HPM said, well, to the extent that DCAA needs to provide or determines that DOE has a need to know some of this information, we're okay with them passing it on, but we don't have an obligation to provide it to DOE. But DOE said we have the need to see everything, so DCAA said okay. Yes. That's not an uncommon stance uh, from the government's auditors, certainly. Sure. Well, dealing with another fellow government agency, they're almost in cahoots. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a procurement attorney at Haynes Boone. So what did the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals actually decide then? So the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals first had to decide whether this was a valid non-monetary claim. So most claims are for money damages under the Contract Disputes Act. And the agency here said, 
well, this is really a monetary claim because based on the denial of access to these fixed price cost records, we're going to remove all unsupported costs from the contractor's indirect costs and provisional billing rates. And at the end of the day, this is about that money and whether we're entitled to recoup a portion of it or deny paying it. And the civilian board said, well, that's not really the case. This deals with a matter of contract performance. If we decide in the contractor's favor, they don't have to provide these records. That's an adequate basis for supporting a non-monetary claim. It's a significant non-monetary consequence of the claim. So the board said, we have jurisdiction over this non-monetary issue. Then they looked at the contract and the government's audit rights under the contract. And there were three different clauses. Two of them are standard clauses that address the government's right to access records. The allowable cost and payment clause, which is for flexibly priced contracts, cost plus contracts, and time and materials contracts, and other flexibly priced contracts. And then the audit and records negotiations clause, which provides different audit rights. But the audit rights at issue under that clause related to flexibly priced contracts. And then there was a third clause that's specifically a DEAR, Department of Energy clause, 9752043, which the agency said, well, this clause also provides us access to those records. And the contractor disagreed. HPM said the two standard clauses from the FAR are only applicable to the cost type part of this hybrid contract, not the fixed price contract. When you have a fixed price part of a contract, that's treated totally separately on these hybrid contracts. And there's no audit rights extending to the the fixed price part. And then they said, as to the Department of Energy clause, that was really intended for environmental and health and safety type records and not just anything under the contract. And the board disagreed across the board with the contractor's position. They said that the DEAR clause, even though it may be sort of intended for environmental health and safety records, but the language of the clause gives the government broad rights to access different types of records without those kinds of restrictions. So they could have stopped there and said, we'll uh, dismiss the appeal for failure to state a claim because this specialty DOE clause provides access to the records the government wants. But instead, the board said, actually, we're not prepared to say that the standard allowable cost and payment clause or the audit records clause don't allow the government access to any records on the fixed price part of the contract. So therefore, the government would have the right to the records under the fixed price part of the contract. That's right. The board said all three of these clauses potentially grant access to the fixed price records. And that's a big problem because there really is a line of demarcation. This is a fundamental aspect of fixed price contracting that the government doesn't have, unless you're talking about a certified cost for pricing data scenario, which it was clear was not the case here. Other than that scenario, the government doesn't have the right to access cost records on fixed price contracts. And a fixed price CLIN on a hybrid contract is the same thing. What would motivate an experienced contracting officer in the first place to think they can have records on a fixed price contract in the first place? That's a great question. So HPM had a theory about why DOE wanted these cost records on the fixed price part. They said that DOE wasn't requesting the costs to verify the costs, uh, that they were properly accounted for, but they actually wanted the information to assist in a new follow-on contract solicitation for the fixed price services that HPM was providing. So they wanted the cost data to be able to recompete with other contractors. 
Yeah, that's really on the edge of kosher, though, isn't it? The board looked at it, and, and they, they weren't sympathetic to the contractor. But I think most contractors would get pretty up in arms over that, the notion that the government is both overreaching and demanding cost records on a fixed-price contract without an appropriate right of access, and also that they're doing it for this kind of nefarious purpose. Yeah, so did DOE get those records? At the end of the day, the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals did dismiss the appeal. So DOE would have had the ability to get the records or they could take the remedies they were talking about and recoup some of the costs or deny paying some of the contractors' indirect costs. So the lesson for contractors is don't do fixed price work for the Department of Energy thinking they can't go fishing and hunting in your internal records. Well, Tom, I think there's a a good argument to be made that the language about the standard audit and records clauses and the allowable cost and payment clauses wasn't really necessary to the holding. The civilian board could have just kept it to the specialty DOE clause. So I think that's the position the contractors will likely take in future disputes. But anytime, you know, boards kind of stray from the standard interpretation of FAR clauses, it creates uncertainty and confusion and risk for contractors. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney at Haynes Boone. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the the behaviors that we allow and we uh, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's... um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. 
Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, 
And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.